listeners, and welcome to Pop Screen, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network. We are the Geek Show Podcast dedicated to the good, the bad, and the frankly downright puzzling of movies, either starring by or about pop stars. No, the podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from documentaries to science fiction, from country and western to hip hop. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm film critic for The Geek Show. I write inlay booklets for Second Run, write for the British horror website Horrified, and I'm a filmmaker myself. This week, I've been joined by Ewan Gledo. Hello. Hey, Ewan. Where can people find you? Yeah, they can find me on Clapper, Cult Following, Spark Sunderland, and Newcastle World. Nice. The disgraced American journalist Jonah Lehrer, stay with me, I can bring it round, um, was found out by his fellow journalist Michael Moynihan when he inserted into one of his books a quote purportedly by Bob Dylan that Dylan fan Moynihan was aware Dylan never said. This is the pitfall for anyone willing to talk about Bob Dylan in public, that even if you're not actively making up quotes like Labour did, you are still going up against the most frighteningly obsessive fan base in all of popular music, armed in my case with a tranche of opinions along the lines of, I, I like the one where everyone must get stoned. It's, it's a nice tune. So... One of the conditions for doing a Bob Dylan episode had to be that I had to, and this is not a tall order, but I had to be paired with a co-host who knew more about Bob Dylan than I did. And just to drop us in at the deep end, we decided to make our Bob Dylan film, not Pat Garrett and Billy Decade, oh no, 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 not even Masked and Anonymous, although that is completely incomprehensible, uh, but Todd Haynes's I'm Not There, a biopic of Dylan that presumes so much prior Bob Dylan knowledge, it is named after a song that Dylan had never released until this film came out. Why did we do you win? It's um yeah, I mean I'm quite a big Bob Dylan fan, but even I didn't know I'm not there it was a Dylan song, so it was un- until I'd actually watched it. Um it, it like you said, it, it takes a lot of background information on Dylan to actually get into this. Yeah. And and even then, if you know all about Dylan and his life and the, the six variants that are in the film, you're still gonna be lost. Um yeah. But that is the kind of beauty of it. And I, I, I kind of like to think it was intentional that the unknowable quality of Bob Dylan was the heart of I'm Not There. It's that I, yeah, I think regardless it of what we say about Bob Dylan, what we talk about him and his work, it, it's inevitably impossible to figure out who he actually is. I mean, given how abstract an interpretation of his life this is, the real Bob Dylan's reaction should not be important. So I think it it is worth quoting his one uh, comment on the film in public, uh, which came in a 2012 Rolling Stone interview. Uh, He said, and I can't do the voice, I'm going to do what I imagine Bob Dylan should talk like. Yeah, I thought it was all right. Do you think that the, the director was worried that people would understand it or not? I don't think he cared one bit. I just think he wanted to make a good movie. Oh, it looked good, and those actors were incredible. That's my Bob Dylan. I forgot Bob Dylan was also a plumber from the Midlands. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
<laughs> I don't even remember the quote. I was just focused on, oh yeah, Dylan and company. They could they could fix the boiler. <laughs> but um it... <laughs> what was the quote? Uh, I thought it was all right. Do you think that the director was worried that people would understand this or not? I don't think he cared one bit. I just think he wanted to make a good movie. I thought it looked good and those actors were incredible. There you go. I think that's as close as a seal of approval you'll ever get from Bob Dylan. I think so, yeah. Yeah, because uh, I, I don't know if you've seen the, the Criterion documentary, the um, Don't Look Back. Um, he's got quite a frigid relationship with journalists. Um, mm. Not a fan of them. Um, yeah. And it, and it kind of surprised me that he'd give a quote on anything, let alone a film depicting six different parts of his life in such a I mean, if you look at the trajectory of Dylan's discography, those six components are very closely knit. They're quite close together. If you've got the Pat Garrett, you know, Richard Gere part at the end, and you've got the the actual culmination of his influences at the start, that's about t- 10, 15 years of his career. And then you look yeah. at the albums that came after, and it's obviously the quality's kind of dispersed a bit, but it's he was still outputting that much at the time. It's sort of... I think Todd Haynes is right to just nail down his glory days mm. and then just don't worry about Planet Waves or the self-titled album. We should probably uh, nail down what those six characters are because I think that's the the best way into the film and the way that I found the most understanding of it is to talk about those characters and what they do represent. Because um, the first... The first one we get a proper look at, I think, is um, Woody Guthrie, right? Yeah. Who's played by Marcus Carl Franklin. Uh, He's named, obviously, after one of the major folk singers who came before Dylan. Uh, He's black. He's hopping across trains across the Midwest. And he's taken in by various sort of hobos and drifters and black families from the south and the midwest and i guess that's kind of that's itemizing the stew that dylan came from right that's looking at folk culture looking at um the aftermath of the depression and the boom in folk music that came from that it's yeah it's that that those segments are kind of they're they're very well acted by uh, franklin and i think the the strongest aspect of them is that the, they do look into his influences. They do look into sort of the period that essentially culminated in what his musical sound would be. It was yeah. the, 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 the world around him at the time, what he wanted to say about it. It's, it's all there. And I think mm. it's surprisingly clear in how it's presented. Haynes is very keen to get the grips with what influenced him, despite going down different avenues of those other characters at the same time as dispelling all this information. Um, it's yeah, I, I think it's 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 probably the best way of doing it, really, to to give you the background of Bob Dylan. It's you know you, you're seeing stuff like uh, Walk the Line, where you're actually living those moments. It mm. in this instance, it works better to just have someone tell you it, just very yeah. quickly. Oh, these are my influences. This is what was happening at the time, and then you actually see what happened rather than what was happening. And there's also the, the thing that some of what inspired Bob Dylan was not stuff he directly lived through. You look at the early albums in particular, there's a lot of songs about civil rights on there, but, you know, 
Dylan wasn't black. He wasn't even from the South. He has no sort of personal experience that you can use as the, aha, there's the key moment in a standard biopic. So it it makes sense to allegorise them in this way, I think. Yeah, definitely. I think it it works pretty well. My my biggest sort of worry for the I'm Not There was that I didn't think having six different iterations of Bob Dylan in what is essentially about two and a bit hours Mm. would work. I thought it would just be a mismatched sort of car crash of just different ideas and different people overlapping each other. But I think segmenting it like this really works, especially when you've got Franklin dispelling, you know, the the early rumours, the sort of influences, the highs and lows, that early segment is just there. You can Mm. pick that up and that's all you need. And it, it feeds into the other five. It's it's the integral core of this film, is that early moment. I also, I, like you, I thought Franklin was really, really good in this role, and I was surprised that he didn't go on to appear more often in things, although I guess when you're like an 11-year-old black actor and you're going to an audition and they say, what else have you done? If you say, oh, I played Bob Dylan, they're going to say, yeah, fuck off, kid. No, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a shame as well because his performance is fantastic. Yeah, um, yeah. Obviously, saying we played Bob Dylan will not get you far. Um, but to be fair, I don't think it, it's such a, a difficult role to replicate, and I think that's why none of the characters are actually Bob Dylan. Technically, they're all little offshoots of his persona. They all, yeah, they they have different names. Not one of them is called Bob Dylan. I think the the opening, there's like an opening credit that's something like based on the lives and lyrics of Bob Dylan, and that's the only time Dylan's name is even mentioned in the film. I think, ironically, the closest to a, a sort of what you might call a biopic performance where it's about getting the mannerisms and the voice and the style of the person you're playing correct is Jude Quinn, the Kate Blanchett character. Oh, yeah. Which is like, yeah, the, so that that's... was the one on release that everyone was saying, are you sure about that? That sounds really weird, but she is the most Dylanish of them all physically. Yeah. I think it, a, a lot of it for especially Dylan fans, it'll depend on what their favourite period of Bob Dylan's work is. Mm. I think uh, like the Christian Bale stuff, that's from his times they are a change and generations swinging like the voice of a generation period yeah and it's it 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 capitalizes on that really well but i think for kate blanchard's performance she she's phenomenal it's Mm. absolutely fascinating how well cast that is and i do think it helps that instead of being told right you're here to play bob dylan they're essentially told you're here to play uh, the the iconography of what he was you're there to play what his music was. And I think maybe the reason why Blanchard as Quinn is closer to Bob Dylan in, you know, voice and clothes and physique is because this was the era in which Dylan was more of a celebrity when you had things like Don't Look Back being made before he started to, like, retreat as much as he could from the press. Yeah, it's kind of the the, the big capitulation was this is his heyday, not because his music was better or worse after this period, but because he then took himself out of the public eye. I, I think it yeah. was 
Blood on the Tracks and Desire after this period were kind of his big album releases. And then after that, you look at it and it's kind of just Christian gospel albums, a, a couple of releases here or there, and then Love and Theft. And it's, it, it, I, th- I think it's, it's an intentional choice to move back from that. And what you're left with is people clamoring and trying to figure out why he did it and also yeah. what the point of it was. And I don't think there's any part of I'm Not There that understands that or wants to understand that because at the end of the day I think what it sets out to do is just replicate a period of history yeah and it does it quite well and I think maybe the the reference point that you should take into the film with you is not you know walk the line or any of those other musician biopics that were coming out around the same time but you should think of Todd Haynes's previous rock music film Velvet Goldmine, which I mean, a lot of people did not like Velvet Goldmine, and a lot of people from the glam scene were like, "Oh, it wasn't really like that." And it's that is kind of missing the point because Velvet Goldmine is not a film about glam rock. It's a film about what glam rock meant to yeah. a gay kid growing up in the seventies, which is you know Todd Haynes. It's about his glam fandom, just as yeah. as this is about what Dylan means to people, rather than yeah, exactly about that. Dylan. It's, is I'm not there really about Bob Dylan, or is I it mean not the title about... is a bit of a well, the title, yeah, bit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's I, I'm glad you brought that up because I was kind of struggling to put it into words. Where it's everyone who's a fan of Bob Dylan has their own persona of him. Yeah. So obviously I, I I was born and grew up way, way after the actual period of his releases. I think Modern Times was the, the latest release in my life. And the, the only one I actually remember releasing was his recent album, Rough and Rowdy Ways. Anything before that is kind of just history to me. It's yeah. not something I lived through and it's not something I experienced at the time. So w- where where it might be that my understanding of it is from purely historical context. There are people that will watch this film and think, ah, yes, I remember when he did this, or I remember when he did that, and I remember when he embodied this or personified that. And it's 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 a film that's so broad yet so specific, and it'll have so many meanings for so many different Dylan fans because Dylan fans are insane. They're, yes. they're madness. Yeah. They are madness incarnate, and they do not stop. Um, <laughs> but that's quite quite nice to see, you know. I've had my oh, fair yeah, share I'm, of encounters I'm, with fans. and uh, yeah. I want to make it clear to Dylan fans listening to this that I am in no position to complain about a fan base being really, really anal about bootlegs and interviews because, you know, I'm an REM fan, so, you know, who am I to say where the limit is? I am in a position to say this because I've, for the past month, had to field calls from 14,000 very angry ABBA fans, so I'm sick of them. But what I will say <laughs> is that Bob Dylan fans are very tame in comparison. Um, yes. Don't diss Europop is all I can suggest. Um, <laughs> I had one encounter with a Bob Dylan fan. Who I, I'd done a review of, I think it was the, uh, his second album, which his name escapes. I think Freewheel and Bob Dylan. I think mm. that was, I, I reviewed that. And I said it was sort of the starting point for, for a new generation of music. And the comment was, well, why did you call it forgetful? And I scanned through the review and it's, I didn't call it forgetful. I said it was the starting point of what is the golden age of not just his career, but music. Yeah. And he just never replied when I pointed out that he was wrong. So right. they're, they're febrile little beasts, these Bob Dylan fans. 
Was but, it Jonah um, Lehrer making up quotes again? It probably was. You can't escape these things. For every nice thing you write about Bob Dylan, five people are going to come out and say, well, actually, I disagree, and here's why. It's like, right. Oh, okay. you think he's a mere genius. <laughs> you only think he's God himself. My God. <laughs> I think that's the big issue. It's that I don't mean to get off topic, but Bob Dylan fans generally are in agreement, but deny it. It's that they they love to argue. Yeah, yeah, and there's plenty to argue about in Dylan's back catalogue. So there is. Yeah, it's, they, they it's a hefty back catalogue. Um, yeah, it's really like quite phenomenal how mm. one man can make Blonde on Blonde, Highway 61 revisited, and then go on to do something like you know, the train album, the gospel one from the 80s. They, I, I, I must say, I, Slow Train, Slow train Coming. coming. Yeah. I have not listened to the, like, there was Slow Train Coming and then was saved, wasn't there? And then his his Christianity became, like, less of a major thing in his work. But yeah. I, have, I am aware there are some people who really love those albums. And I know that when... Um, when Cat Power recorded Jukebox, an album that I love very much, she, uh, that was a whole covers album from her, and one of the songs she chose was uh, I Believe in You, which is off one of those albums. So I think they have their fans. Dylan, like a lot of legendary 60s stars, had a rough 80s, but those two albums, I think, are more divisive than despised. Yeah, I think you can gauge on how rough a period was for a 60s artist on whether or not they joined the Travelling Wilburys. For Dylan, (laughs) very. Um, (laughs) For Roy Orbison, very, very. Um, Slow slow Train Coming, I have listened to, and it's it's pretty good. It's all right. Um, Mm. I think what you can never escape from with Bob Dylan is that regardless of how sort of unrealized or interesting or just different the lyrics are the musicianship is still there the yeah. acoustics are all in the right places the harmonica still goes you know woo. He, he can still do all that and it still sounds good it's just I, th- I think he he tries to better himself over and over again when he's already hit that peak with something like sad-eyed lady the lowlands or like a rolling stone it's mm. once you've heard the peak it's very hard to to, to realise that the rest of the music that comes after it is still very good, but the peak was that high, yeah. that it's 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 difficult to listen to it when you when you know what he was capable of. Yeah, yeah. So we should we should double back a bit because you've mentioned Christian Bale's uh, version of Dylan, yeah. who is called um, Jack Rollins, and he's the one as as you say he does. Um, embody Bob Dylan in his early kind of protest singer phase. There is a wonderful anecdote about this that Haynes approached Dylan's manager, Jeff Rosen, when he started writing this for permission to uh, develop a screenplay about Dylan's life. And Rosen suggested that Haynes should send uh, a synopsis of the film to him, but he said, under no circumstances use the phrase voice of a generation <laughs> it's but voice of a generation is a strange nickname the only reason i use it is because it's a nice synonym for the words bob dylan um, yes yeah that is the only reason i would use it i i, I kind of get why he's called that mm. um at the same time it's you know you you 
there are a few voices of that generation that are still knocking about. You know, Paul McCartney. Yeah. Um, like you know, the, Brian Wilson. There are there are lots of voices of generation. I think it's it all boils down to subterranean homesick blues and sort of the, the protest angle that Bob Dylan took. He was very vocal about that, whereas the Beatles were too busy, you know, getting very high and writing amazing albums to to really dive in headfirst to the protest generation. There is a lovely anecdote about Dylan meeting the Beatles, which is faithfully reproduced in this film, by the way. That's exactly what it looked like if you've uh, watched I'm Not There. Um, but there, there is a great anecdote about Dylan hearing You've Got to Hide Your Love Away, hearing John Lennon play that to him. And that is one of those like mid-period Beatles songs where you can tell they've been listening to a lot of Bob Dylan and Dylan said afterwards, yeah, I get it. You don't want to be cute anymore, which is <laughs> so great. It's, I mean, I, going back to that voice of a generation thing, he, he kind of influenced almost everyone. He's one of yeah. the, the very few artists that you can point to and say that this, this has been an influence on essentially the, the, the foundation of music. It's Bob mm. Dylan, the Beatles, and a couple others. Yeah, who have who have genuinely rattled the cage of what is expected and what is allowed as an artist. Yeah, and you look at that period from the free wheel and Bob Dylan all the way down to I would say about Nashville skyline, where it's pure gold. It is solid mm. identification of what makes music tick and what makes music different. Yeah, when when he ditched acoustics for electric, it was sort of the the big blasphemy of the time. But when he actually you know when audiences appreciated it it's like that bit in back to the future where he says your kids are going to love it yes yeah and it it feels like bob dylan was always doing that with something always on the horizon even rough and rowdy ways like there's a there's a 22 minute track on there about the assassination of jfk yes that is yeah it's one who is that for and two why is it so bloody good It, it has no right to be um but i yeah i can see why he's I don't know if it's him or his sort of manager agent that said don't use voice of a generation, but either way, I can see why they want distance from that. Because it does yeah. feel like a kind of cliche. And it's... I think even by the early 70s, you've got, I mean, this is what David Bowie's song for Bob Dylan is about, that um he was starting to distance himself from that idea that it was his job to be the spokesperson for the counterculture. And he was trying to, you know, insist on his rights as an artist who can do whatever he wants rather than, you know, a lot of protest singers have this problem where you can predict what their next album's going to be like based on what's in the news. And they have like a checklist of issues that you expect them to hit. Yeah. Uh, and Dylan, I think, quite reasonably thought that was limiting as an artist. Yeah, it's it it is limited, and it's it's you know you look at the the generation that came after it for protest music with punk. Mm. It's the you know the reason the Sex Pistols are so loved is because they only did one album. Yeah, it's, if they'd done another one, it would have just been the same issues, but sang at a different reverb. Um, it's you know I, protest songs are interesting. I, I I never really considered the idea that someone could just live off of the proceeds of protest money. Mm. You know, like they they would just make protest songs over and over again. Usually yeah. there are like one or two that stand out per artist. Like Elvis Costello has one called Tramp Down the Dirt. John Lennon's obviously got one. Well, he's got more than one. 
um, Jarvis Cocker's got one. It's there are artists that have protest songs, but to actually be sort of envisioned and embodied as the voice of the protest generation is kind of a it's it's a tough one to sell to the future because when yeah. that generation is passed on to the next big thing, whatever that was, like the Clash and stuff like that, once they've moved on to that generation of music, and once the next generation has moved on to that set of music, it's hard to reclaim that stature as the voice of a generation when you're playing for a generation that is no longer relevant. I think you have, it's one of those reputations that you have to dismantle yourself rather than wait for people to decide that you no longer fit it because that's fatal. Absolutely, yeah. And I think it's, you can kind of see it with stuff like Desire and Blood on the Tracks where it's, it still has those moments and notes of protest, like Hurricane is a fantastic song, mm. but it's, it's eight and a half minutes on one specific issue on not even a protest but of someone that has been wronged for no reason and it's yeah it, it's tracks like that that really give a sense of okay he still knows that he is technically the voice of a generation but he's moving on from that he's moving yeah, on to the yeah. next step and it's the next step that was kind of a bit clumsy but it, it, on reflection it's 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 a necessary clunky step it's so far removed from what he was known for with mm. the gospel albums and stuff like that it's it, it reinvents him and it might not be a bad reinvention it might not be a good reinvention but David Bowie was best at it as well once he'd gotten sick, sick of the spiders from Mars he became the funky Thin businessman and then yeah yeah Thin White Duke that was a funky businessman well I don't know where I <laughs> you're thinking but of yeah. his tin machine it's... days where he's very much very committed to the role of uh, a guy in a suit in a band yeah it's the best artists will go through reinvention. I mean, you look yeah. at the Beatles, where they went from yeah. the Fab Four Quality Streets look to just four blocks, mm. um, and it's it's that reinvention. It's whether even whether or not it sticks with an audience, it doesn't really matter as long as it works for the artist. Then yeah. fantastic, and I think it worked for Dylan, not time and time again because he only really had to do it once. He had to remove himself so far from the voice of a generation, and then start slowly making his way back to a comfortable middle ground, and he's got that now. He's at that point. Yeah, and the strange thing about Dylan's reinventions is that he's done it while maintaining a reputation as someone who is like very sincere and authentic yeah. and makes sort of very stark, rootsy music. When you talk about other pop stars who reinvent themselves, most of the time people are talking about figures like Bowie and Madonna, where the reinvention is more obviously theatrical. Yeah. But Dylan never had that. There was, tragically, you know, never the period where he came on stage in a massive, like, feather and sequins outfit and did disco pop. There should have been, but there never was. <laughs> I want to see Bob Dylan in Elton John's Live Aid. <laughs> That's the reinvention he needed. Yes. But unfortunately, he just he cowered out of it. Um <laughs> I think it's, well, you look at him in stuff like The Last Waltz when he was performing with the band on their final tour. Mm. And he's got sort of the, it was on Desire as well. He's got a big fedora hat and he's grown his hair out really curly. And yeah. I think that's the closest to reinvention he really got was putting on a hat. Yes. <laughs> it speaks volumes that, that actually changed the personification of his music and what people thought of him. Yeah, yes. <laughs> um, so that either of Dylan, that kind of, Blood on the Tracks, mid to late 70s, Dylan. That's Heath Ledger's character, Bobby, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which was the one that I... 
I don't know if I had to pick one that I thought was a, a bit of a strange fit it might be that one because what it seems to be riffing on is so close to Dylan's own private life in a way that the other segments yeah. are about his influences and his image that that struck me as a strange decision yeah I, it, it is strange and I think the strangeness of it comes from what we talked about at the start of this it's Bob Dylan, it's, it, he's unknowable for all mm. we talk about his music and his influences and his influence. We, we know very little about him as a person. And I, mm. I kind of like that we don't know much about him as a person. What, what Todd Haynes doesn't understand is that if you know very little about the person you're adapting, there's very little you can actually demonstrate. Mm. Um, and I think it's quite odd that Heath Ledger, I, I think it's right, the very first time we see him, is he's performing as Bob Dylan, who is performing in a film. Um, yeah, he's playing the Christian Bale version of Dylan in, yes. in a biopic, in a rather straighter-looking biopic than I'm Not There. It's it, it, it's an odd amalgamation. It's, it, inevitably, if you're going to make a biopic, you actually do have to talk about the artist behind, you know, the person behind the artist, per se. Yeah. What, the difficulty there is that nobody has ever really thought about who Bob Dylan is behind the arts, and if they have thought about it, they've gotten nowhere because there's yeah. very little. You know, we we know about the Joan Baez stuff, we know about the Johnny Cash influences and their work together, mainly because it's on the album, mainly mm. because you can read the lyrics into it. I think it was after Blonde on Blonde came out, he was he he talked about that album and was kind of in reflection twenty years later saying. Oh yeah, that was quite a biographical album for me. I, I didn't realize it at the time, but yeah, yeah a lot of that is, is related to me. So how 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 do we know what relates to him when he doesn't know what relates to him? He's well, writing music thing, about God knows who. Yeah, I mean, everyone says Blood on the Tracks is a really autobiographical album, but in Chronicles, Dylan's autobiography, he says it was mainly like he'd been reading a lot of Chekhov, and he wanted to do an album of these little domestic dramas which yeah. I'm not sure whether I believe that. It seems a remarkable coincidence that he decided to do that just as his marriage broke up, but still. It's what we call, well, not a happy coincidence, but certainly a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I, I do want to read Chronicles because it does seem quite interesting. It's sort of just getting it from the horse's mouth seems to be the easiest way to go about, you know, just dissecting artists' lives. Um I think with, with such a large discography, though, it should be quite sort of easy to piece the puzzle together, even if Bob Dylan's coming out and saying, well, I didn't know I was writing about myself at the time, but it turns out I was. Yeah. It's, it, it's unknowable. And I, I think that's the mystifying quality of him. And it's why people go back to his music is that they want to find out something extra. They want to find out something new and they want to be that person that thinks, oh, this is about this then. And then they can bring that up as something new and unexplored. And then in yeah. 12 years' time, they could find out that they were wrong because Bob Dylan was either high or drunk while writing it, and he didn't know. <laughs> yes. I mean, a lot of people have said this. I, this is far from an original point, but you read Chronicle and you enjoy it, certainly. You get information from it, but at the end of it, you do not know Bob Dylan as a person any more than you did when you started the book. That's that's quite a quite a feat though, isn't it? To write an autobiography yeah. and teach teach the audience nothing. Yes. 
And I think that's that's kind of replicated in I'm Not There. He's mm. quite literally not there. Nothing you learn in this film and nothing you enjoy about it is particularly true or, you know, mm. the, these are just sort of puppets. They are, they're, they're kind of large-scale reenactments of what his persona was at the time and whether his persona was actually his personality. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, Haynes said of the Robbie Clark section, the Heath Ledger section, that um, the marriage is also, in its dissolution, is also parallel for the Vietnam War, which I think is great. I have a great soft spot for going back into history and finding events that are unconnected, but feel like they are weird omens. And I guess... If you're a young kid whose life is changed by listening to the freewheeling Bob Dylan when it's released, and 10, 15 years later, your hero's going through a lengthy divorce and you're seeing people being airlifted out of Saigon, it, you don't have to have like a supernatural world for you to think this, this is the absolute death of the last decade. This is the death of all that potential. Yeah. And I think that speaks volumes, not just how powerful a public persona and a writer that Bob Dylan is, but just art in general. How you can yeah. subconsciously connect a world event with something that big. You know, the fall of Saigon being connected to Bob Dylan's work. It doesn't strike me as strange. It strikes me as sort of people from that generation are piecing two things together. Mm. Not, not because they want there to be a connection, but because they feel there is just from a perspective of they're living through it and that's sort of on the one hand you've got an awful tragedy and on the other hand you've got something to cope with and to mm. realize it through yeah well there, there are two dylans in the film that we haven't mentioned yet the one who gets the least screen time i think is uh, ben wishaw as arthur rambeau who is named after the 19th century poet who Dylan has cited as an influence, but talks in, I think, a, a very a very Dylan-esque fashion, I would say. Yeah, like, he, at one it's... point, when he's accused of fatalism, he says, I'm not fatalistic, bank clerks are fatalistic, which <laughs> I can't, I'm not going to be Jonah Lever here, I'm not going to say that is definitely a Bob Dylan quote, but man, it feels <laughs> like it could be. It's, I think Ben Wishaw gets like the, the short end of the stick at, at times in this because he hasn't got much screen time. But you look at the scenes he's given mm. and they're fantastic. They're just sort of the, it, it's the upmarket Bob Dylan fan who believes every word he says is poetry and gospel. Mm. And it's, <laughs> it, it's adapting that, but also taking the piss a bit where it's saying, oh yes, everything that came out of his mouth was gold. Any, any utterance from him was just the next generation the voice yeah. of a generation and it's <laughs> it's nice to see that they play around with that or the bank tellers thing like that's it's, great i think it's because dylan's persona now has exploded to the point of people think that everything he says has meaning behind it yeah it's like the, the man could ask for a cup of tea and people would think about it not because they think it's going to be profound but because it's something dylan has said yeah and i think the arthur rimbaud stuff it's it's really good not not just because of that but because Wishaw actually has some decent acting in that but he actually looks the part he actually plays the part quite well despite having you know he's competing with Christian Bale and Heath Ledger who are at the career best in this period 
mm. and he still comes out looking relatively strong despite how little screen time he gets. Yeah, he's always good with Shaw, isn't he? I don't know if yeah. people appreciate that properly, but he's one of those actors where I've seen him in things that haven't worked, but I've never seen anything that hasn't worked because of him. Yeah, he's he's got an undeniable effective quality to him. He makes mm. shit like Paddington passable. He Hang brings on. to life that arsehole bear with such <laughs> enthusiasm. This is... That was not the weak spot in his. He did a fucking whaling movie with Ron Howard and you're sitting here attacking Paddington. Ron Howard knows nothing. What he is and he is shit. At least he <laughs> accepts that. Paddington couldn't accept that because his ego's bigger than the sun. He should be stopped and shot. <laughs> I don't like Paddington, but I do like Ben Wishaw. So I sat through two of those films and I imagine I'll have to sit through the third. <laughs> So there's Anybody Paddington. Anybody keeps marmalade in his hat. It just doesn't deserve anything. You know, he's, he pulls his hat off. He's got a nice little marmalade sandwich. I'd slap him. I'd backhand him. I'd, don't don't get me wrong. I hate marmalade. I'm going on the record about that. But oh no, I like marmalade. I, the, I remember watching Come Outside as a kid. Are you? And one one of the episodes of Come Outside, they went to a marmalade factory. And it was all about um, the the Spanish would bring us oranges, and then we would turn it into marmalade, and they would be disgusted. And it was that that's the beautiful cycle that I was taught by CBBS. <laughs> yeah, I'm on the Spaniard side about this, to be honest. Um, it's perfect. oranges that you can spread on toast. It's it, it's the next generation, as Bob Dylan was. Marmalade <laughs> is the is the Bob Dylan of food. It's it's expendable. It's it's forever. Yes. Um, but yeah, that that's Wishaw. Um, that's that's some good Wishaw discussion we've had there. Yes, he's the marmalade um, of the film. He's yeah. the glue that keeps it together. Well, if I mean, I, I can't accept using it as food, but using it as glue is completely unreasonable. I think <laughs> using it as a welding paste is acceptable, but to consume <laughs> it is just madness. Yeah. Um, Richard Gere Richard Gere though yeah I mean I don't know about you but are you surprised to see Richard Gere in this I think so and yet you know I have seen Richard Gere in some pretty left field films I've seen his remake of Breathless I've seen his work with Paul Schrader I think Richard Gere is such a great movie star. Like, he's exactly what you picture when you hear the word movie star. That he can do a thousand films like this and it'll never stop feeling a bit surprising when he turns up in them. Yeah, because it's... Isn't it this time where he's not quite out of fear with Hollywood because he'd just done Chicago. Yeah. And then he did Hatchy. And then that was kind of it for a while. I think this is, like his big last stand, essentially. Because you, you look at his latest credits and they're not the most inspired of, of credits. He did a, a film called The Three Christs and stuff like that. That's his big releases now. Yeah, he, he seems to be... I, I guess it's one of those things where as soon as the romantic comedy fell from favour as like a big Hollywood genre, as soon as you stopped getting a situation where a romantic comedy could be in the top 10 highest grossing films of the year, 
then it was hard for him to really find a spot in mainstream Hollywood. And he does indies now. And, you know, some of them are very good. So, yeah, fair play. Yes, and and some of them at the dinner. I haven't (laughs) seen the dinner. Oh, it's... Imagine Bob Dylan's words and all of his, like, febrile thoughts on on man and and everything, but condensed into just chit-chat at the table without (laughs) the poetic justification of it. It's awful. But um, I, I'm, I'm, I was happily surprised to see him crop up in this. Yeah, um, yeah. I think he plays Billy the Kid quite well. I mean, yeah. it's such an odd role for him, but it's something that suits him. It, it, it reminds me, so, you know, like, like you mentioned there, the romantic comedy when it died its death. A lot of those big mainstream, like, actors that was such a fundamental part of it had to move on. Hugh Grant did it really well. He essentially reinvented himself for stuff like The Man From Uncle. And uh, the Paddington too, and and oh my god! So this is not. <laughs> yeah, he did Paddington too. Yes, he's yeah. morbidly circling the Paddington it's, franchise it's, because you know you're wrong about it. It's it's a shame he didn't succeed in that film. Is all I'll say. <laughs> um, I mean, he, he did a cycle of work where his aim was to kill Ben Wishaw, didn't he? That was his major <laughs> motivation for quite a while. It's not a bad motivation. <laughs> I do like Ben Wishaw, to be fair. Um, but yes, uh, I think, uh, you know, a, a bit like um, Franklin, I, I do think Richard Gere gets a bit of a short end of the stick, Wishaw yeah. as well. But it's it's what they do with such a short period of time. It's just really impressive. You know, you've got Blanchard, Ledger and Bale. They're the mm. front three. They're the big three that people are going to go in and think, oh, I know this from The Dark Knight, or I know this from well, The Dark Knight as well. Yes. And, you know, um, it's, it's, it's the three that support them. They're yeah. so integral to how I'm Not There works because they're the, the concepts. They are the, the detail behind the performances. And to mm. separate the two, it, it works surprisingly well. I think that's a good way of looking at it. Yeah, particularly concerned with how interconnected the scenes with Ledger and Bale were. And I think the segments with Gideon are particularly interesting because the it's not just the lead actor that shifts, the filmmaking style shifts a lot as well. The Wishaw and the Blanchett segments are very mock documentary. Um, the segments with Franklin at the start are really lush and lavish and have that kind of almost an old brother where art thou look at the depression as this faded postcard. But the gear segments are properly Fellini-esque, aren't they? This is, you are reminded that that phrase, old weird America, came from, was it Grail Marcus's review of the basement tapes, I think? It's it's definitely a look at the sort of weird carnival roadshow side of Dylan, and it really dives into that. Yeah, it's. I, I don't think that's touched upon as much as it should be. That the um the freewheel and Bob Dylan thing. What's it called? The Rolling Thunder Review. Oh yeah, that, yeah. That aspect of his performance, where he essentially just said to all his very famous musician friends, "Come and do a concert with me," and they went all right. And 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 it does feel like a carnival. It's uh, that was yeah. the big aspect of the Scorsese documentary was that you know he comes up on the stage with face paint and he's still got that big bloody hat. <laughs> um, it's an aspect of his career that isn't touched upon as much as it should be. Um, certainly here is it's nice to see that Fellini-esque madness. It's, yeah, 
it's really inspired at times as well. I think Hands quite quite justifies it and nails it really well. There's, de- there's definitely more giraffes than I expected in a film about Bob Dylan. Like, I expected, if you can believe it, none whatsoever, but... You expected no giraffes in a Bob Dylan film? <laughs> Amateur. Oh, God. There's bound to be some interview from 1968 where he's like, hey, if anyone ever makes a movie about me, they got to put a giraffe in it. That's actually better than the impression you did at the start where you, where you did, essentially did Darren from Whitehall. That was good. I wish I could do impressions. All I can do is Rocky Balboa and Austin Powers, but they're sort of <laughs> universal impressions that anyone can do. Uh, I think Austin Powers is like circling back, though, isn't it? It's been so yeah, yeah. for so long. It's actually becoming ironically amusing now. It's, yeah, and that's beautiful. I'm sorry to go off track, but the Austin Powers resurgence has fascinated me. So I think it all life. stems from... It's, <laughs> it's the re-release of the Blu-ray that's done mm. it. Somebody has somewhere thought Austin Powers is at a, a responsible level of people take the piss out of it online, yet still dress up as him for Halloween, like yeah. Bob Dylan. We can re-release <laughs> this now, and we can cash in on it a bit more. So I would expect not just an Austin Powers trilogy on Blu-ray, but I would expect the revamp of the Basement Tapes on vinyl very soon. Yeah, I've, I've always thought Austin Powers was the voice of his generation in a he, lot of ways. Genuinely, yeah. if you think about it, honestly... I don't mean to compare Bob Dylan to Mike Myers, but for my generation, (laughs) Mike Myers genuinely, quite probably, is the voice of this generation. Because he was Shrek, he was Austin Powers. Those are two, like, unequivocally damaging roles for my generation. It's it's been hellfire. (laughs) But the amount of people that still talk about him, it is on a... Again, I don't want to compare the two, but Mike Myers is talked about in my generation as much as Bob Dylan was talked about in the 1960s. And of course, he's, he's so secretive now. He's so mysterious. He's definitely... <laughs> he it, he's... One day he's going to come out with his blood on the tracks. <laughs> He'll also win a Pulitzer for writing. <laughs> <laughs> I can see it now. Austin Powers 4 draft thrown into the script file. And there it is. <laughs> It's, yes. <laughs> I mean, any great artist should know that if you can convince Michael Caine to be your father in a film, definitely you, you must be doing something terribly right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, how can I reel this one back in? I <laughs> well, you've got Austin Powers and Michael Caine. I, I wish you the very best of luck. Well, let's talk a bit about performances. You mentioned you enjoyed the Richard Gee performance. I think we both mentioned that we enjoy the Marcus Carl Franklin performance. Yeah. I think that, like I say, the, the Kate Blanchett one was the one that impressed people the most at the time. And I get that. I understand perfectly why that is. But yeah. looking back, I mean... This is not a transformative performance, uh, the one I'm about to mention. And it's surprising because it's an actor who does a lot of those. But the Christian Bale role, I watched that and I thought, yeah, I'd forgotten how fucking good you are, man. It's, I mean, yeah, if you watch him in stuff like Ford v Ferrari and The Fighter, just kind of films that have passed by the wayside, they're not up there with The Dark Knight or like Prestige. He, he does not switch off with how good he is. He can yeah, do anything. Yeah. And it's I do think it's this performance that personifies that best of all. It's that 
he can do fucking anything, and it's yeah, quite scary yeah. that he can. Um, it's it's a fantastic performance, and I think it's because it's one of my favorite iterations of Dylan. Mm. It's that you know one of my first memories of encountering Bob Dylan's music is the actual the music video with the placards where he's throwing them off. Yeah, and it's seeing Christian Bill do that portion, not the actual placard bit, but the actual sort of the interviews around that time where he's hunched over, he's got the harmonica on him, and he's got the guitar in his hands. Yeah. That actual identification of what Dylan was at the time—it's so well realized that you kind of just you get taken along for the ride with that one. It's it's impossible to sort of fracture yourself out of it. And I think if you gave people the the cast list of all the various Dylans, and you said okay, one of these people is doing a really extreme physical transformation. Everyone would say, oh, right, it's Christian Bale, is it? Which one is it this time? Is he fat? Is he thin? Is he bald? <laughs> you know, he's, he's neither. He looks like Christian Bale throughout. But yeah. it's it's a really great performance. Yeah. And it's I've always had an issue with films like biopics and stuff where where is the line between impression and performance? And I think yes. it's Christian Bale does it best, even in stuff where it's wobbling a bit with Vice. Mm. I, I still think he retains that artistic integrity as a performer and as an artist rather than an impressionist. It's very easy to fall into that wayside of just, ah, I'm putting on my Bob Dylan voice. This is me doing a Bob Dylan performance. Yeah. Where Bale actually takes the characteristics of the time. He actually studied the material. He studied the interactions and interviews and he replicates them not not to to impersonate dylan but to understand it better and i think yeah. that's the important thing for all of these performances actually is that their work here is at the very least trying to help an audience experience and understand the thought process of the artist mm. which is very difficult to do because who who knows what's going on in that mind yeah, uh, but also part of what helps it is it's it's trying to recreate the thought process explicitly from the records. You know, it goes back to what we were saying about the Marcus Carl Franklin uh, character. That isn't a version of Bob Dylan that's drawn from interviews with him about his childhood or yeah. going around his childhood home and asking people if they remembered him growing up. It's his influences as are obvious on the music he made and what he wrote and said. Um, and, and that's why I think it makes sense that the one character who is trying to look like Bob Dylan is the one woman who plays Dylan, because it means you can you can have the sort of virtuoso impersonation. You can look at it and say, my, my God, it really is uncannily, you know, like Bob Dylan, and it is. But the fact that it's a woman means there is still that distance. There is still something reminding yeah. you that this isn't the real Bob Dylan and it's not meant to be the real Bob yeah. Dylan. Yeah. I think that's, it's, it's like I said earlier, where it's Francis Gear and Blanchett. The, those three are so far removed from what we perceive Dylan as, mm. you know, they, they look nothing like him really. Yeah. They, they are people that are done up in makeup to look like him but there is still that distance between Bob Dylan and Kate Blanchett and Richard Gere it's and it's that difference between them that really solidifies their work as as more than just oh this is what Bob Dylan might have thought of this period it's it 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 adds an extra layer to it where it's oh okay this is actually someone performing as someone meant to be Bob Dylan because like mm -hmm. you said it's not Bob Dylan 
it's and it's really such a, a confusingly difficult line to manage where it's this is essentially a Bob Dylan biopic that never once really wants to interact with Bob Dylan. Instead, yeah. it wants to use people as sort of hosts for his embodiment of art rather than who he actually is. Yeah, yeah. And barring the ledger one, I think it's it's telling that they are all in some way about Dylan's effect on the audience, you know, Blanchett is playing Bob Dylan in the vortex of celebrity. Guillaume and Franklin are playing imaginary Dylans drawn from his influence. And Bale's Dylan too is, this was something I couldn't quite fathom because he is portrayed in another mock documentary segment. So again, it's how people see Dylan. Um, But he is portrayed not just as the early uh, protest Eva Dylan, but also as the later Christian Dylan. And oh, I'd, I'd expected them to create a new character for that because it's a different Eva, but I couldn't quite work out why they tied those two Evas together in a way that they didn't with anyone else. I think for me, it was, uh, you know, you, you've got Christian Bill playing the very start of his career and then uh, the, the complete opposite of what his career would become. Mm. And I think the reason behind it would then be that at the end of the day, he is the same person. The person that was the voice of regeneration was the person doing the Christian folk albums. Yeah. And I think having Christian Bill play both works, but I would agree with you where it's, you, you get someone else to do that. You, you separate these things as like an anthology thing. Yeah. And I'm really glad that it wasn't, here's one iteration of Dylan and then here's the next one. And then here's the next one. I'm really glad they just mushed it all together threw out all the, the usual anthology nonsense and just laid it over the top. Yeah. So yeah. much easier. Haynes is good at that. Have you seen his first film, Poison? No, I haven't actually. Poison is a pretty good companion piece to this. I watched it uh, when I was doing a challenge on Letterboxd and one of the categories was an anthology film. And I watched it thinking it was going to be an anthology film from everything that I'd I'd read about it. Uh, But in fact, it isn't. It has three very, very differently styled storylines and it interweaves them in exactly the same way that this film does. Uh, But it's a good film. It's like, it's hard to really, to think back to how it was received because it's a very abrasively queer themed film that was released at the height of the AIDS epidemic in America. And I think Haynes said that it, he was going around the film critics circuit at Sundance after it had premiered and uh, he, he stuck his hand out to one of the critics and said, hi, I'm Todd Haynes. And the critic said, oh, what film did you direct? And he said, Poison. And the critic just went, slowly took his hand away from Haynes. Um, but of course, it, it doesn't look controversial at all. Now it's, it's hilarious, no. but... Um, it is still a very good film, I think. Yeah. Uh, Haynes in general, do we have any thoughts? Um, I, no, I, I don't. I mean, I mean, I watched that new Velvet Underground documentary, did, and I'm not the biggest Velvet Underground fan. Mm. And that was all right. Yeah. Uh, Carol and Dark Waters are really good. Uh, I think he's, I, I don't know how to pin Todd Haynes down. Yeah. He's far too versatile for his own good. He needs to make he, he's a bit like Bob Dylan in that regard. Mm. 
he he does far too much, far too much different things. He is he has this mystifying ability to create whatever he wants. You know, mm. he can make like a, a love drama set in the 1950s of America and then just raffle out a piece on the Billboard Underground the very next year. He could yeah. do Six by Sondheim and then just turn around and say, oh, I'm bored of that. I'm going to do something else now. And it's impressive. It's, yeah, it's very yeah. impressive. It's like, I want to go and do a film with Mark Ruffalo where we talk about water poison. It's like, all right, okay. It's like, what would you like to do after that? A documentary on Lou Reed's band. It's like, very well. Yep, okay. So I'm kind of excited to see what he'll do next because the, the man is unpredictable. I, yeah. I, genuinely i'm like very impressed i don't think i've seen a, a todd haynes film that i didn't like yet i haven't yeah, seen I'm one that i absolutely loved though i would say cavill is definitely a film i love and uh i like i say i'm very very fond of poison as well i should get around to seeing dark water because my, my main memory of dark water is that it came out in about february 2020 and it was one of, uh, like, Dark Water and Dido Harding seem to be the only things that have actually benefited from the pandemic. Because when Dark Water came out, everyone's like, yeah, it's all right, I guess, you know, worth seeing if you get the time. And as cinemas shut down and as the months rolled on without any new films, I just met so many people who were like, I saw Dark Water and it's, it's yeah. still in my head. It's really good. It's, 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 it's nice that the destruction of the global economy gave <laughs> it time for it to be properly appreciated. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, I've not left my house in about a year and a half, but on the <laughs> other hand, Mark Ruffalo and Bill Camp are doing some of their best work. It, it's, it, I think it's on Netflix now as well, so it's... I, oh, I think no I went to see then. Dark Waters yeah. in the cinema. Mm. It was one of the last films I saw in the cinema so far. Um, yeah. And I remember being like not blown away by it, but I had the same thoughts that I had for the front runner, that Hugh Jackman political drama, mm. where I thought this is pretty good, but it's not going to do very well because it's essentially just a sleeper. Yeah. Um, and Dark Waters has had the Halloween effect of word of mouth and complete boredom has set it on fire. <laughs> yes. And it's it's kind of nice to see because if anybody deserves it, it's probably Todd Haynes. Yeah, yeah, and you know it's it's nice to think that. I realise he's part of the, a cog in the Marvel machine as well, but it's nice to think that a Mark Ruffalo vehicle is a thing that you can sell tickets with, because who doesn't love Mark Ruffalo? Yeah, it's it's nice. I mean, the last time he was able to do that was probably 13 to 1 on 30. So, you know, mm, it's, it's yeah. the modern boom. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I think that's wrapped everything up, hasn't it? Yeah, I'll... Don't think I've got anything. Um... We've we've knocked out everything we can on Bob Dylan. Or yeah, we've, I don't. We've talked about every ounce of his career. I struggle nothing to. More. I struggle to imagine anything more being written or said about Bob Dylan. I think we've basically yeah, think nailed it. There. That's it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we 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 we've only glossed over the uh, sixteen unreleased uh, bootleg tips and um, <laughs> his twenty first century output, his live albums, his many singles, and. The stuff he did with the band, but that's water under the bridge, really. It's Other a little on the tracks. Yeah. Other than that, there's uh, we, well, we didn't talk about his Christmas album, uh, which, by the way, must be Santa is an unironic Christmas favorite in this household. I think that's a great <laughs> song. It's the the man has done quite literally 
everything. Yeah. That was kind of, it, it was like he had a checklist. It was like, before I die, I need to do a Christmas album that not only underperforms McCartney 2, but is better than it. <laughs> it's like, right, very well. It's, <laughs> he can't be stopped. And I think that's scary. He's the Todd Haynes of music. He's the, he's the Terminator of folk. <laughs> yeah, that's the end point, isn't it? That's the, that's yeah, the, the Terminator of folk. And it took me a minute to realise he meant folk music rather than folk as in people. People, yeah. Well, the Terminator <laughs> is the Terminator of folk in that sense. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'd like to see Arnold Schwarzenegger and Bob Dylan do a, a, a comeback album. Yeah. <laughs> Blowing in the wind or something like that. Lovely. <laughs> yes. I'm not going to risk the impression. I've got away with one pretty good impression so You've far. You've but... away with one solid impression. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm another not... plumber. I don't say, yeah, I don't want to, um, don't want to deliver another plumber. Um, <laughs> but yes, listeners, if you enjoyed this week's show, you can get more by donating to our Patreon. Which is at www.patreon.com forward slash the geek show, where you'll get a monthly bonus episode of this show, as well as access to our other movie podcast, Director's Lottery, and my Doctor Who reviews. But until next week, that's been your lot from Pop Screen. I've been Graham. I've been Ewan. And we'll see you later. Mm-hmm.